0: Well, thank you, uh, Deacon Biel. Well, the best way to listen to God's Word is really to have your Bibles open because we will make reference to it quite often. And if you find it helpful to have an outline, I would recommend that you go to our website, download our bulletin, and then you will find an outline of this sermon. Now, we had our second child, Adriel, when I was uh, at Bible College in Sydney when Adriel was about to be born, we weren't too anxious about it. Now, we are not anxious because we had our first child, Caris, before that. And we thought we got everything all sorted out. We have attended all the prenatal classes, you know, and had all the first-hand experience of having a new baby. So we know how to pack the bag, you know, we know all the things about the contraction timing, the epidural injection, and all of those things. We were already... And for me i knew that my role is pretty simple all i had to do was just to hold my wife's hand just comfort her and encourage her God, you can do it you can do it right and then i got it all sorted out already so we were pretty confident about the birth of our second child but guess what the hospital delivery ward was full when my was about to give birth to our second child so they bumped us up or bumped us to this thing called or this place called the birth center. Now in Australia they have birth center where the midwives help to deliver the babies without the help of drugs or surgery. Now at the birth centers the husband is supposed to help deliver the baby. Well, I wasn't prepared for that. I got no training in that at all. So I watched helplessly as Mason groaned and screamed because there was no epidural to ease the pain. And I kept running out of the room to look for the midwife. Hello, anybody there? And the birth center, I can tell you, is really one interesting place. It was at night, but the lights weren't turned on. In the main hall, it wasn't turned on in the corridors. The only lights are those dim lights that come out from every individual rooms. And then as I called out for the midwife... All I heard was, ah, Those were the screams of all the other mothers. No, you would have mistaken it for a horror house, I tell you. But thankfully, the midwife came. But I received dagger stares, you know, and was scolded immediately. What are you doing? You are supposed to help. But I don't know how to help. She then got Mason down on the floor and got me into a position to receive the baby. And before I knew it, Mason's water bag burst with such force that the amniotic fluid just went all over me. Now that's quite a different kind of baptism, I must say. And surely I wasn't prepared for that. I didn't even pack an extra set of clothes for myself. I wasn't expecting this at all. So for the whole night after the birth of Adriel, I was my clothes were just wet with amniotic fluid, sleeping through the night. See, all the confidence I had previously was shattered that night. Now I built my confidence based on my past experience, and I lost it all in my present circumstances. Yeah, it makes me wonder sometimes, right? What do we build our confidence on in our lives? Is it our past experience or what? see if we are to live and obey god's will where do we place our confidence on see in other words what gives us confidence to obey god's will see for moses we know that he was a confident man right from the beginning right he killed an egyptian bully and intervened in a fight between his fellow hebrews but that confidence was shattered when he was hunted by pharaoh and even when god appeared to him and commissioned him to deliver israel he was reluctant god has to convince him with signs and by sending aaron to him as his spokesman now boasted by these signs moses and aaron went to the elders in exodus chapter 4 verse 29 to 31 and aaron spoke all the words that the Lord has spoken to Moses and did all the signs in front of the people. And the people believed and they worshipped the Lord. That is a good start, isn't it? Moses and Aaron now must be brimming with confidence. So off they went to Pharaoh, the most powerful ruler at the time. They said to Pharaoh, and say that in verse 1, this is what the Lord, the God of Israel says, let my people go so that they may hold a festival to me in the wilderness. How did Pharaoh respond to such a request? Pharaoh said to Moses and Aaron, in verse 2, Who is the Lord, that I should obey his voice and let Israel go? I do not know the Lord, and moreover, I will not let Israel go. Oops, that didn't go down too well their confidence must have taken a big hit at this point Then moses and aaron stated their request in another way in verse 3 the god of the hebrews has met with us please let us go on a three days journey into the wilderness that we may sacrifice to the lord our god lest he fall upon us with pestilence or with the sword was it any better well sadly no Pharaoh ordered them to get back to work. The, the previous Pharaoh was afraid of all this large number of Hebrews. But this current Pharaoh isn't worried at all. In fact, he favors the large numbers because they are his cheap, if not free, workforce. They are there to build all his storehouses and all his pyramids. You can imagine why he is not willing to let Israel go. However, he was more ruthless and harsher than just rejecting the request. He concluded that the people of Israel are just idle or lazy. And that is why they have asked to go and sacrifice to the Lord. You know, it's just like our army culture, right? The idol will always be tekan, you know, or or punished by giving them more work. Hence, Pharaoh ordered the Egyptian taskmasters and the Hebrew foreman to stop providing straw to the Hebrew slaves. You see, in those days, very finely chopped straw was added to the clay to strengthen the clay before baking them. But as punishment, the people of Israel have to gather those straw themselves. The making of bricks is punishing in and of itself. As you can see in this picture, It shows that there's a lot of bending down, a lot of getting up, as well as a lot of carrying. It's really back-breaking. And now they have to go around and bend down some more to pull out stubbles in the field. Furthermore, Pharaoh did not cut down the number of breaks that's required of them. So less tools, more work, but same quota required. And it was with immediate effect Faster than the implementation of fuel tax and GST, you can say. See, life is more than miserable for them now. Moses and Aaron's confidence would have been shattered by this point, it would have been at the lowest. Now, see, scholars have debated whether Moses and Aaron were so confident or maybe so arrogant that they did not obey God's command. So, some pointed out the differences between what God said to them in, uh, in uh, earlier, what he's supposed to say to Pharaoh. So let me summarize those differences for you in the slide. So in contrast to chapter 3, verse 18, where the original command was, Moses and Aaron did not bring the elders with them. They omitted and changed some words. They also seemed more demanding. Their later request in chap- chapter 5, verse 3, was much closer to God's instructions. So there's a lot of debate going on between people and scholars about this. But do the differences matter so much? Would it have changed Pharaoh's stand if they had followed the Lord's instruction to the T? See, I doubt so. I'm not sure even whether those differences uh, make the request look like disobedience to God. The emphasis in this passage is not so much about the preciseness of the wordings or the manner of approaching Pharaoh. Instead, it is on the arrogance and the disregard of the Lord by Pharaoh. See, when Moses and Aaron made their first request, Pharaoh's reply was, Who is the Lord? Now, I don't think there was ignorance on his part, because in the polytheistic culture, With many gods such as egypt pharaoh would at least know the name of the god of the hebrews see even politicians today right must have some kind of knowledge of the faith of other minorities what more for such a big group as the hebrews hence when pharaoh says that he did not know the lord he was basically disrespecting disregarding the lord the Pharaoh is seen as God in Egypt. So by asking Pharaoh to comply to the Lord's instruction is a direct challenge to his authority. Now, Pharaoh is not going to let that happen. Right? He's not going to allow this thing to happen on his turf. It's like the power play which we sometimes see in the office, in politics, and in international relationships. They're not going to give in at all to somebody else. Now, this rivalry is further evidenced by the deliberate play of words or contrast between Tha says the Lord in verse 1, right? And then Tha says Pharaoh in verse 10. So it's rivalry there. Whose word will count in the end? Is it the Lord's or Pharaoh's? As such, you can see that Pharaoh is setting up himself up as the anti-God who is going against God, going against his creation mandate, going against his covenantal blessings. So this fight is not between Moses and Pharaoh. No, it's a fight between God and Pharaoh who considers himself a God. But for now, it seems that Pharaoh is winning. The words of the false god count for the moment. See, according to verse 9, Pharaoh imposed heavier work on the people of Israel. And the purpose is so that they will pay no regard to the lying words, which was essentially God's word. He He was not just calling Moses a liar. In fact, he is calling God a liar. See, as a result of uh, this new production or construction rules set by Pharaoh, the people of Israel cannot produce, cannot produce the required number of bricks. The Hebrew foremen were then beaten up by the Egyptian taskmasters. So, this Hebrew foreman came and he complained, or more accurately, cried out to Pharaoh. Now, the, the foreman placed the, trou- the cause of the trouble on the Egyptians, according to verse 16. Say, behold, your servants are beaten, but the fault is in your own people. Now it was they who did not give us the needed raw materials, or perhaps it was an indirect swipe at Pharaoh. And how did Pharaoh respond to their cries? So twice in verse seventeen, he told them that they are idle, idle. Double confirm that they are lazy. And that's why they asked to go and sacrifice to the Lord. And then Pharaoh double confirms his punishment again in verse 18. Go now and work. No straw will be given you, but you must still deliver the same number of bricks. Now let us not miss the irony here, right? You see, in Exodus chapter 4, verse 22, it tells us that God calls Israel his firstborn son. They are his people. But yet these four men call themselves your servants to Pharaoh. And then the people of Israel are to go and serve the Lord. But Pharaoh is now making them serve him. You see, the word work in chapter 5 verse 18 is the same word as serve. So instead of serving the Lord, they are to serve Pharaoh. And ever since chapter 2, verse 23 to 24, God has heard the cries of the people and He has acted to save them. But here we have the Hebrews crying out to Pharaoh who only doubles their troubles. He seems to act even more harshly and ruthlessly than before. So we can't help but wonder, why did the four men has such easy access to Pharaoh. Now, it's not, it's not really a common thing, right, for, for a president of a country to, to meet with the construction contractor. Very uncommon. Well, it's not, you know, Pharaoh is surely not trying to win votes or anything. So I believe it is Pharaoh's way of trying to create intentional, you know, internal dissent and conflict. See, the harshness and the confirmation of punishment will cause them to blame Moses. And then this ploy actually worked. See, verse 20 tells us that the four men met Moses and Aaron as they come out from meeting Pharaoh. And they immediately put the blame on Moses and Aaron. You see, normally people will say, well, let the Lord judge between the two of you. It's another way of saying, let God determine who is right or wrong. But here, the four men says, The Lord look on you and judge. You made us stink in the sight of Pharaoh and his servants and have put a sword in their hands to kill us. So now it's all on Moses, it's all, all on Aaron. If there was any confidence left in these two brothers, it would have been gone by now. However, the four men they have totally forgotten, totally forgotten that all the elders and the people have given their approval earlier in chapter 4, verse 31. See, they have changed their allegiance so easily when troubles came. Their difficult circumstances diminish their faith and their confidence so easily. See, how tragic, how sad it is that they are calling for judgment from the Lord on the very people that God has sent and commissioned to deliver them. And it's not as if they were well treated by Pharaoh before that. They stink in the sight of Pharaoh long before that. So how did Moses then respond to their complaints? Well, he didn't. He didn't answer the complainers. He didn't you know, answer to these four men. He turned to the Lord instead. You see, in any typical fashion of those caught in difficult circumstances, Moses asked the why questions. Why have you done evil to these people? Why why did you ever send me? See, twice in verses 22 to 23, Moses questioned and complained that God has sent evil to his people, even through Pharaoh. See, God has promised to deliver his people, but he has not done it. See, obviously, things were not turning out well, as he thought. It was as if God was to be blamed. The blame game that we saw in Genesis 3 is repeated here. The, Pharaoh blamed, uh, the four men blamed Pharaoh, Pharaoh blamed Moses, and the four men blamed Moses, and now Moses seems to be blaming God. However, was Moses was Moses right to think, that, or think this way about God? Well, let us look back at chapter 3, verse 19 to 20, when the Lord gave him the command to go to Pharaoh. See, God has already told Moses that Pharaoh will not let his people go. See, Pharaoh needs to be compelled, compelled by a mighty hand of God. It's a way of saying that God will strike Egypt, right, which, he, which we now know as the plagues, before he will let Israel go. It was not meant to be easy, fast, and smooth sailing. And presuming that Moses told that to the elders and the people, they should not be surprised at the outcome as well. However, their difficult situation, their circumstances have made them lose confidence in God. In their suffering, their focus is on themselves and their situation. They have built their confidence on their present circumstances now that confidence is misplaced because they do not know the full purpose of god and they forgot all the words of god they stopped trusting god and lose their confidence in obeying god because they focus on their own circumstances but thankfully moses didn't turn away from god he still turned to god in the hardest of times And he will get his answer soon see my friends what gives us confidence in obeying god's will well firstly it must not be our circumstances right we cannot sway from having confidence and not having confidence based on the circumstances we find ourselves in confidence in obeying god must firstly be based on his word what he promised and what he says he will do But secondly, our confidence must be based on God's character. And we will see that in chapter 6, verse 1 onwards. So after hearing Moses' complaints, God answered him. Moses accused God with all the you. You have not done this. You have done this. But now God is going to answer with the I. I have done this and I've done that. And I will do this and do that. So, chapter 6, verse 1 reiterates what God has already said to Moses earlier. But now he says, This is the time. Now is the turning point. It is no longer just his spoken intention. It is the right time for God to show his saving power and character in action. God will compel Pharaoh with a strong force to make him send out the israelites out of egypt but to bolster moses's confidence the lord reminded him who he has been all this time in verses 2 to 5 and then he will tell him what he will do in verses 6 to 8 and he bracketed these two sections in verse 2 and verse 8 with declaring by declaring who he is who is the one who is speaking he is the lord and he said that two more times in verses seven and six he is the lord who has never changed and he will not change in other words he's telling moses to direct his focus and base his confidence on him on his character seen through his actions now firstly in chapter 6 verse 3 he is the one who has appeared to the patriarchs. He has appeared to Abraham, to Isaac, and Jacob as God Almighty. Now, the actual meaning of God Almighty, uh, which is El Shaddai in Hebrew, is quite unclear. However, his usage in Genesis seems to point to God as the all-sufficient God. He has met his people's needs, And he has kept his promises time and time again. So Yahweh, the Lord, is that same sufficient God who has directed, protected, and supplied the patriarchs in their ups and downs. And even when others try to harm them, God has worked it for the good of his people. But now, god is going to reveal himself to israel as yahweh see to my children i'm always known as Dad, right Dad, you know i'm the one who provides for them i'm the one who chauffeurs them around uh, i'm the one who fixes things for them but my daughter Carrie knew me in a whole new different way when she was in primary school now she was dropped into the track and field team And during her competitions, I will take leave and I will be there to support her. See, I will cheer for her till my voice becomes hoarse. You know, I will cheer for her even when she was losing. I will cheer for her almost to the point of her embarrassment. But you see, that took on a new name ever since. I am now known as her biggest fan. Now she knows I'll be there cheering for her in all her endeavors and for israel yahweh is a name that is already made known to them ever since genesis 4. so it's not a new name so to speak however at the threshold of a great salvation god is to be fully known as yahweh the full understanding and significance of who yahweh is and what he will do will soon be understood and witnessed by the people of Israel. And then secondly, in chapter 6, verse 4, God told Moses that he has also established his covenant with the patriarchs. And part of the covenant is to give them the land of Canaan. Now this promise was given 400 years ago, and God has already said at a time that he will deliver them out from a foreign nation. To say it now again was to give confidence to Moses that he is a faithful God. He has not forgotten his covenant 400 years ago. He is waiting for the right time. And then lastly in verse 5, God shows that he is a compassionate God. See, he has heard the cries and the groaning of his people who are suffering as slaves to Egypt. So, with all these three statements, God is telling Moses to base his confidence on him and his character. He has shown himself to be sufficient, faithful, and compassionate. And based on these revealed characters of his, God tells Moses to tell the people of Israel about what he's going to do next. So, in chapter 6, verse 6 to 8, God told Moses that he will do seven things. Denoted, denoted by the seven eye wills and we see on the screen so the first three section actions that god will take has to do with liberating and delivering the people of israel from slavery and then the next two actions is about relation making relationship making god is going to make them his people and will be their god the people of israel then will know god personally as the Lord will deliver them, and the last two actions have to do with keeping the covenant that God has made with the patriarchs. He has promised to give them the land of Canaan. So God will now fulfil that by bringing them out of Egypt and giving it to them as a possession, or giving Canaan to them as a possession. How will the people of Israel take this message from God? Because Moses is supposed to say that to the people of Israel. What God said about himself, what he did in the past and the future, and what he's going to do in the future, will give them confidence to obey God, isn't it? Well, verse 9 tells us that it didn't work. The people of Israel did not listen to Moses because of their broken spirit and their harsh slavery. The focus is still on their difficult circumstances. In their mind, Moses is just a sabo king. He's a scammer. Right? Who knows what new troubles he will bring to them. They let their circumstances weaken their faith and confidence in the Lord. What about Moses? How did he take God's assurances and message now with the people's rejection of the message you would think that you know God may just sigh in a bit you know comfort him a bit you know but no the Lord just told Moses go to Pharaoh and ask for the same thing again ouch right so Moses protested how will Pharaoh listen to me if my own people do not And once again, he brought out his old excuse of inadequacy. I am of uncircumcised lips. Well, that can mean that he has, you know, he has uh, faltering lips, or he can't speak well, or that he's like unfit or incapable to be used as God's mouthpiece. Now, while we can be a little bit more sympathetic to Moses at this point, but the problem is. He is still focusing on his circumstances. See, at the unfavorable response of the people has shaken his confidence in obeying God. See, and from focusing on his circumstances, he's now focusing on his own capabilities or his lack of. His confidence is still misplaced. Instead of placing his confidence on God's word, on his character, he places it on circumstances and his capabilities but nonetheless the lord is undeterred by his wavering servant verse 13 tells us that god gave him gave them a charge anyway the same command to speak to pharaoh was still given to moses and aaron regardless of their complaints and their lack of confidence now as you go through the passage we come to the strange section of the genealogy of Moses and Aaron in verses 14 to 27. Now the emphasis is obviously on the lineage of Levi or more specifically of Aaron. Right? There are many views about the purpose of the genealogy and I will not go into it, but I think the main purpose here is to show that God's plan is broad and long-lasting the appointment of Moses and Aaron is neither random nor a mystic. They will be an appointed line of priesthood, and Phinehas, the grandson of Aaron, will become very prominent in the near future. So after this insertion of the genealogy, God continues to help Moses place his confidence in the right place in chapter 7, verse 1 to 7. And once again, this whole section is filled with what God says he's going to do. He is going to make Moses represent him before Pharaoh with Aaron helping him as a prophet. All Moses and Aaron needed to do is just to speak whatever God has commanded them to say. However, God will harden Pharaoh's heart so that he will not listen to what Moses says to him. God will eventually bring the people of Israel out by great acts of judgment. Now that put things into perspective. God's actions are not merely to save his people, but also to judge evil. And then verse 6 goes on to tell us that Moses and Aaron did just as the Lord commanded him. And from now on, We do not hear of Moses' reluctance to obey God in the book of Exodus anymore. It seems that he's starting to put his confidence in God, his character, and not on his own circumstances and capabilities. And then we see in the last statement in verse 7, it is an interesting one, right? It tells us that it took Moses 80 years of his life before he learned his lesson to put his confidence in God. 80 years. Now, D.L. Moody says, well, and I quote, Moses spends 40 years thinking he was somebody. Then he spent 40 years on the backside of the desert, realizing he was nobody. And finally, he spent the last 40 years of his life learning what God can do with a nobody. See, my friends, God can use two old men in their 80s to do this great work. I guess not many of us here are 80 yet. So what gives us confidence in obeying God's will? Firstly, it must not be on our circumstances. Confidence in obeying God's will will must be based on his word, what he promised and what he says he will do. But secondly, our confidence must be based on God's character. And lastly, our confidence must not be based on our capabilities. God can use whoever to do whatever, even if you are 80. So now, what, what, am, what might all these things mean for us? Well, just let me share two lessons for us. Well, firstly, let us not be like Pharaoh who is arrogant towards God. Now, we'll see more of that in the plagues. His question of who the Lord is will be answered loud and clear by that time. But here, even in one chapter, we see that Pharaoh has totally disregarded and disrespected the Lord. He set himself up as God and punished God's people harshly. He didn't just deny the request. He imposed heavier work on them. See, his rejection of God is seen in how he disregards human life because of his pride and self-interest. Now, it can be happening to us, too. See, we may not have slaves now, but we can still be oppressing or bullying others. Our classmates, our subordinates, our domestic helpers, the waiters, the co-workers, the cleaners, all for our own gain. So let us be reminded today that every human being is made in the image of God. Harming the other sets us up as an anti-God who goes against God's creation mandate. And one day, we will have to face the judgment of the true God who abhors evil. But secondly, it is to ask ourselves the question of, what we are placing our confidence on when we obey god's will see very often we are like the people of israel and moses we place our confidence in our circumstances and in our capabilities we determine whether god is for us or against us by how good or how bad our situation is see a, a, a friend of mine from barber college trained Raised support and prepared herself for years for missionary work overseas, and finally she was ready to go, and she went. On the first day in her host country, she went to a cafe to make use of the free Wi-Fi. You know, poor missionaries just go to the wifi cafe to send emails, and while she was doing that, a robber just smashed the window beside her table and snatched her laptop and ran away with it she was totally shell-shocked. Surely not on the first day, Lord. And missionaries have tight budgets, right? So is that where God wants her to be? Should she have just stayed home? Well, there are people that I know as well who have given of themselves faithfully to serve God and serve others in ministry. Now, while trying their best, they are being told that you're not good enough. Or not doing good enough. You Or not doing enough and not caring enough. Now, were they wrong in serving out of their obedience and the needs? Perhaps they are not capable enough like Moses. Perhaps they should just not do anything. Another friend of mine was a bit perturbed by some of the practices in a company. And after seeking clarifications and trying to make changes, the wrong practices continued she decided to blow the whistle and reported it to the authorities. Now, it wasn't long before she was found to be the whistleblower. And then she was ostracized at work since then and had to resign. Did she do the right thing? She should have just closed one eye, and closed two eyes even, and just let others be harmed. See, likewise for some of use. Some of them have stood firm in their Christian beliefs, especially in sexuality and gender issues, but have, they, and they have not been antagonistic. However, they were despised and they are cancelled for being unloving and bigoted. Or well, should they have followed the world instead? Should they have kept silent and obey God privately? See, my friends all these things happen in our lives they can be a enc- discouragement in our, our obedience to god but should our circumstances be our confidence in obeying god well the answer is no right why because god did not promise an easy and smooth life for us now i'm not saying that we should just bulldoze our way when things are not in our favor There's a place for humble reflection and time to seek God and others for wisdom. However, what I'm saying is that we cannot let circumstances and our capabilities be our confidence and main determining factors in our obedience. In fact, Jesus told His disciples that they will have tribulations in this world. Romans 8 8 tells us that creation is fallen and under bondage, we will have problems. Difficult circumstances are to be expected. Trials and sufferings will come our way as Christians. Obedience to God does not equate to the absence of troubles. It may even bring more because this world is against God. Yet they can be used by God to mold us, to mature us, and to purify our faith. See when the Lord Jesus became flesh and walked among us, he had no end or trouble. Jesus tempted and tested him. He couldn't, even as God, in his earthly life, heal all the sick who came to him. People went against him, rejected him, betrayed him, tortured him, and finally killed him on the cross. Just like Moses, they abused and rejected the very one whom God has sent to deliver them. See, if Jesus was to build his confidence on his circumstances, he would have given up long ago and he would not have gone to the cross. But thankfully, he placed his confidence in the Father's love, in the Father's will. And we are saved from our sins as a result. So, my friends, do not overread your circumstances and place your confidence in them. They are not foolproof indicators. See, when your circumstances are bad, it does not necessarily mean that you are going against God or that God is against you. And similarly, do not assume that you are doing everything right in the Lord simply because you are having a good life, good results and success in every endeavour. See, our best indicators and grounds of confidence are still God's word and his unchanging character. And we have a better grounding, better grounding than Moses and the people of Israel then. Because we have a surer confidence because of Jesus, his death and his resurrection. He is God's ultimate proof of his love for us. Jesus is also the ultimate security of deliverance From the slavery of sin and from the fallen world. So, my friends, be bold and go forth to serve and obey Him. He is the Lord. Let us rise and pray together. Dear Lord, we come humbly before You, acknowledging that You are the Lord of all creation, the Lord over our lives, and the Lord over all circumstances. Nothing happens outside Your good and sovereign will. But we confess that we have often placed our confidence in our circumstances and our own capabilities, resulting in a lack of faith in You. So dear Lord, you promise us that your grace is sufficient for us even in our weaknesses. So may you strengthen us by your grace to always keep our eyes fixed on Jesus, the author and perfecter of our faith. Help us not to waver when circumstances are not in our favor. May we hold on to the hope and the love in Jesus Till we see you face to face. Amen.